I said, actually, mom, I identify as queer. And there was this about a 15 second hesitation and I just let it hang because it was at that moment I needed her to feel the depth. And, uh, and she said, really? Hello and welcome to Out Loud. Out Loud is a podcast by and for queer people of faith in the South. Here we tell our stories of varied religious upbringings, messy coming outs, and the gift of community with one another. I'm your host, Greg Thompson, and the voice you just heard was Reverend Dawn Bennett. Dawn is a queer female Lutheran pastor recently ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, also known as ELCA. Her family is truly, as she would say, a rainbow family. Her own siblings, as well as her own children, have come out to her throughout her life. We delve into a discussion about her coming out later in life and responding to a call to be a pastor 20 years after she had first heard it. Dawn is a proud queer woman who has come into her own and accepted her entire self. She now serves the Nashville and Middle Tennessee areas through a new ELCA Lutheran collective called The Table. The Table is one of our community partners here on the show and promotes spiritual well-being for LGBTQIA and minority people groups in the exploration of self, faith, community, and the deeper issues of being and belonging. The Table affirms all gender identities, gender presentations, and sexual orientations. At The Table, your preferred pronouns will be honored. A transgender group meets twice a month and a dinner and devotion will be coming later this summer. And there's pastoral mediation available for help with conflict resolution. To learn more, visit thetablenashville.org. And to learn more about our other partners and view this episode's transcript and resources, head on over to outloudstories.com. And now, let's hear from Reverend Don Bennett. Thank you for agreeing to be on the show today. I'm so excited to to chat. Could you tell me about what your faith experience was like growing up? Actually, um, my faith experience growing up was, as I remember it as a little person, yeah. uh, great. Uh, I always had a sense of uh, Jesus in my heart. Never once did I ever feel ashamed or um, away from God. Uh, one of the beautiful gifts that I uh, got from my years uh, living as in the Catholic tradition is this um, wonderful uh, sense of reverence. Mm. And I think in lesser liturgical uh, environments, that reverence sometimes gets a little bit overshadowed. Mm. Um, that being said, the... Uh, that same reverence and high liturgy can be traumatizing to people. So mm. I'm very sensitive to that. All I can say for Dawn is that when I close my eyes, I can still hear the communion bells ringing that mm. the altar boys mm -hmm. used to ring at the uh, words of institution. We don't utilize those in, in the Lutheran church, uh, but 
it's so near and dear to me because it every time I hear a gong, uh, it brings me back to that moment and it brings me, it's such a holy moment for me. Mm. So I carry that with me. Um, I, my father was a deacon in the Catholic Church. And okay. so that happened in my teenage years. But I do remember some of my elder siblings running me to Mass on the weekends. Where it turned for me is uh, when I began to um, seriously embrace the uh, harm that the church did by its strict doctrines to my siblings. I have two gay brothers and a lesbian sister. And um, being raised in a Catholic tradition became problematic when I began to um, not look the other way mm -hmm. at the ways in which uh, the Catholic teachings um, singled them out and then excluded them. It still kind of puzzles me how I made it this long without coming out. I've been out a handful of years now. Um, but when I was um, a young girl in uh, middle school, I had experiences with other girls. Hmm. And uh, and I had experiences with boys. Back then, we were much, you know, there was no talk of beyond the binary. That's the world that I lived in. Yeah. Um, so I've always had uh, crushes on lots of different kinds of people, but I was raised uh, in a in a household. I don't know if it's linked to religion or not, but certainly homophobia played its part. I was raised, my sister and I both, to grow up, get married, pump out a few kids, and get a job. That's what I did. Yeah. And so I spent many years married to a man. Um, a straight white man, and uh, I'm only in the last 15 years realizing how harmful that experience was in my life and mm -hmm. continues to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so my coming out was part of my comeback story from leaving an, an emotionally and verbally abusive marriage. Mm -hmm. It was part of my coming into myself and um, my coming out as queer for I mean for those who need technical uh, I'm pansexual but I use queer because it fits me well mm. and it feels comfortable and it yeah. gives me the freedom to be who I am and it also invites conversation mm -hmm. uh, it does yeah it's important for me to live a life of, especially as a pastor, communication and conversation. And if I give one word explicit answers, the conversation stops because people get all the information they need. Mm -hmm. But if I'm deliberately a little bit vague or a little bit elusive, people are more invited into responding in their curiosity. And that's how we build relationships, in my opinion. So like, let's walk back a little bit. What was, when you were in the process of coming out, was that during your marriage, after? Where did that kind of land? 
or was it gradual throughout all of that time? Well, that too is complicated. My, um, I have three children and my, uh, my second child, um, came out as lesbian Um, in high school. Uh, prior to that time, I saw the signs their dad saw the signs and we Mm -hmm. had a lot of conversation. Uh, Most parents, I mean, I I really cannot get on board with somebody being a a complete surprise. It's just, you know, your child, if you're paying attention from the womb Mm -hmm. on, you at least get an inkling. And so, Mm -hmm. um, but my child's dad said, if if she's gay, if she's lesbian, it's your fault because you have gay siblings. And I just said, that is the most ignorant statement I think I've ever heard. Um, Did you say that to him? I did. I did. And and it caused a hostile argument. Um, And I probably could have been a little more diplomatic (laughs) and gentle. But but I I think, you know, that fire was fueled by knowing that I have gay siblings and having to go back and forth, particularly with my mom um, and people around me about having to defend my siblings quietly. And, and were you at a point of like affirming your siblings by that point? Oh, absolutely. You, okay. Okay. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I've never not affirmed my siblings. I just said some things that were problematic in their own yeah, right. Yeah. And that was my ignorance and my areas where I, my growing edges. Right. Yeah. I think at that point I, looked in the mirror and knew that I had been attracted to female identified persons my whole life. And I didn't have a problem with it. And I didn't really think God had a problem with it. But my, my reality at that time was that I was married to uh, a straight man and I'm monogamous. uh, And so um, it just didn't seem profitable to even have a conversation because I wasn't going to change my marital status. At that point, I was deep in the throes of mm-hmm. um, unhealthy relations where codependency played its part. And so uh, it was it was kind of a go along to get along. And I think a lot of queer people find themselves in that mm-hmm. environment for a variety of reasons. So you were asking all those questions around the time your daughter came out or mm-hmm. in response to that? Sort um, of no, it, well, yeah, I, I think, I think it's fair to say that uh, I was, um, I was faced with my own personhood and I had to decide uh, where, which direction I was going to go. Yeah. Um, part of being in my, part of my truth as a parent is that um, I believe that I have the children I have because God saw it fit to bring me these particular children. Mm-hmm. There's billions of children and and I got these three. And it's because God decided that I was the fit person to give birth to them and, and bring them life into mm-hmm. the world. Um, so I've never had an issue with who my children are, yeah. right? Um, particularly um, my trans son. Um, I came out as queer uh, in seminary. And this is post-divorce. Okay. It, it was part of my getting real with myself and um, doing my own healing work and doing my own uh, 
crisis intervention, you know, through the means that are available, counseling and self-help and uh, prayer, meditation, all those sorts of things. You know, we go through periods of willingness to be vulnerable. And then we go through periods of strength where we're going to do it scared. Uh, And affirming my entire self is a commitment that I made. And and I think that uh, it is fair to say that I pigtailed off of my child's being out in the world. So when I came out officially, the first three people I came out to were my children. Mm-hmm. And the next three people I came out to were my siblings. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, those are those two groups are in line behind coming out to myself and coming out to God. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. How did how did they respond? My children, all of them, well, my transgender son got a big smile and said, welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was kind of cute. Um, my older son and my daughter, uh, they they basically said, mom, you know what? You be you, be happy, be healthy, be whole. And this is not a shock. And uh, it's no big deal to us. I mean, we already have gay uncles and a gay aunt. Now we got a gay mom. I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> and it, it almost was like a speed bump. You know how you yeah. see it coming, you go over it slowly, and then you get on with your life. Mm. And and that's how it's been. I only came out to my mother uh, two weeks before ordination, however. That was recent. That's very recent. And people don't know that part of the story because I keep it quiet, but until today. (laughs) (laughs) How did that go? Um, Well, it's fair to say that uh, I can only say how it went from my side of the story. And uh, it was somber. So um, my mother has come a very long way. The first kid she kicked out of the house. The second kid lived several thousand miles away, so it was stick it under the carpet. Mm -hmm. But the third kid to come out was the baby of the family, the golden boy. Um, And so that went much better, (laughs) not only for him, but, you know, just in terms of family dynamics. Um, And all of my siblings have been out 20 plus years, some of them, uh, you know, 50 plus years. So... uh, The, the one the one caveat to this story is that when I came out to my siblings, I wanted to come out to my mom. Yeah. And we had some conversation around it. I was in seminary, and seminary will wreck you. It, it, it um, systematically breaks down every foundational wall that you've deliberately built up Correct. to make sure <laughs> to make sure that uh, do they need to be erected? And if they don't, what what needs to go in their place? And, and well said. S- right. And so it was it was in seminary that I did this deconstruction work and reconstruction work. Uh, and um, part of that reconstruction was to uh, come face to face with the woman who birthed me and claim my uh, autonomy as a God given gift and also as uh, a child of God who was purposefully and wonderfully created. And so I put that 
to my siblings and they were in disagreement. Uh, they collectively, we, we had a great co- phone call, four of us on the phone together. It's a conference call so that everybody could hear from, you know, their lips to our ears and vice versa. Um, and they collaboratively suggested that I do not come out because it was not going to profit my mother anything. She's in her 80s. Um, and she's still a devout Catholic. She still believes that it's a choice. She lights a candle for their soul every day. She prays for them every day. And, um, of course, by this time I had a transgender, uh, child who, uh, she struggled to figure out what to do with that. And, uh, so they just said, you know, I I don't think it's going to profit you or mom any to to come out um especially since you live you know several states apart and so um much to my chagrin i did not come out Mm. to my mother uh but i have to be honest and say that um over the years if i had guilt about anything it's from keeping that secret from my mother because scripture says you have to honor your mom and dad Mm. and it became apparent to my heart that i was being dishonorable to my mom uh, by keeping this from her. And yeah. again, I don't need Sorry. her permission or her acceptance. So for me, it was more a matter of everybody who knows me knows I'm queer. I'm, mm-hmm. I have a public career. I have a public life. I'm out to my children. I'm out to my siblings. I'm out to all my friends. I mean, it's cost me dearly, but nonetheless, every, everybody who knows me knows. Yeah. Everybody in seminary knows. My mother's the only living human on the planet that didn't know. <laughs> and I thought, no, this is not going to work. And um, when I knew that uh, ordination was coming, um, I went back to the back to the uh, seat with my siblings, and I said, "Listen, uh, I'm not going to do that to her. You know, she is not going to roll in here at my ordination and find out from all of these people." Oh gosh, no, that'd be hard and disrespectful. And so <sighs> I started praying about a year ago uh, for God to open a window. And uh, and I didn't know how it was going to go, but I was oh every time I was in a conversation with my mom, I was on the lookout for God saying, "Over here, Don. Over here, Don. Here's your space," <laughs> you know. Um, and about two weeks before ordination, uh, the space opened up, and um, and it, it's it's to my mother's credit, and it it shows her willingness to grow. Um, I believe that the transition of her grandchild from female to male has played a pivotal role for her much more than I even know. Never once has she misgendered him. But I do believe that uh, her her willingness to think about it, to pray about it, to uh, maybe wrestle with all of that uh, provided an opportunity for her to get interested in my work, particularly my advocacy work as a pastor. Mm. And so she asked me uh, in her queer Boston language, she says, uh, so what is queer? <laughs> and so I, I went into my, just naturally fall into my LGBT 101, uh, you know, about the three uses of the word queer, um, you know, as a verb and as a lens to look through the world and as a sexual orientation. And um, 
And so I was, I was in, I have a, a tendency to talk about it, uh, the same pattern, which the first is, is as an umbrella term mm. for all LGBTQIA plus persons, right? Yeah. Uh, that can get to be a really long acronym that sometimes people get lost mm-hmm. when you, when you use it. And so, uh, I've exp- I explained to her about the umbrella term and that it's no longer derogatory. It's being, uh, revived in a holistic and healthy way, powerful way. And then I naturally went into uh, the queering of a lens, which uh, at Vanderbilt Divinity School encompassed about 90% of my work Mm. is the lens, the queer lens of queer theology and queer activism and queer life and queer parenting. Um, And so she got that. And then she said, now the Q, that's queer. And so the the Q part is that she says, I get the L, that's, and she put my sister's name, yep. And I get the G, and she used my brother's names, yep. And I get the T, that's, and she put my son's name, yep. Now, what's the Q? Queer. I said, yes, mom. And actually, and this is, this was the holy moment, Greg. She, <laughs> this was the silence and I saw it coming. I was like, God, you got the greatest buildup of anybody I know. I said, actually, mom, I identify as queer. And there was this about a 15 second hesitation and I just let it hang because it was at that moment I needed her to feel the depth. And, uh, and she said, really? And I said, yes, really. And what this means for me is, and then I proceeded to back up in my life and say, you know, I've had experiences with girls and women. Uh, I've had experiences with boys and men. And I've had experiences with people who are beyond the binary. And so, and I said, you know, I never said anything about it because I was married to a man and and I'm monogamous, so there was no reason for me to open up that Pandora's box if I wasn't going to pursue anything. I said, but I have to be honest and say that since since my divorce and since rebuilding my life, since working through codependency and all of the work that I've done and raising my son through transition, it's important for me to claim every aspect of myself. And she listened very intently. She listened. And then I felt compelled to say to her, Mom, the reality is never once have I felt not even an iota of shame for who God made me to be. Never. I never have, and I never will. And she said to me, uh, we both practice, many people in my family practice 12-step recovery. Mm. Um, I practice it for codependency and because there are addicts in my life and it keeps me in love in relationship with them and my mom same way and so um she said to me well i will light a candle because nothing in this crazy family surprises me anymore i said okay and she said you know what also uh god will help me accept the things i cannot change Mm. And that was the end of the conversation, and I let that be the end of the conversation. Yeah. I, I think if anything was hurtful, that was it. Because for me, it was laced with, yeah. I don't accept you, I don't approve of this. Uh, and I, there's nothing that I can do about it. That's not my work to do. That's her work to do. 
Yeah, that is double-edged mm-hmm. for sure. Because it almost has this subtext of like wanting to change. <laughs> but at the same time, there is this like desire to accept and understand almost too. Yeah. That's an interesting part of it's a it tough is, prayer. <laughs> it's a very tough prayer, but but I understood it because this is what is so uh true about partially why my siblings encouraged me not to come out. Mm. Being raised Catholic, my mother had a little bit of a heartache when each of her children walked away from the Catholic Church. She had a little bit of a heartache when I walked away because she knows that my faith is so important to me. Uh, And when I first uh, told her about the call of God in my life to become a pastor and that I was leaving the secular world, quitting my job, going to seminary, um, she said, and I quote, well, I don't believe in female pastors, but I support you, Dawn. She doesn't remember saying it, um, but she did say it. She and, and I remember it so verbatim that has been an albatross around my neck for many years. Hmm. A couple of years ago, when she got interested in my preaching because she realized there was a little buzz around it, she thought, hmm, maybe I should hear some of this. So she started asking me to record my sermons, and so I did, and I send them to her, and she gives me her feedback. Uh, she always corrects me when I say she for God and the Holy Spirit, and we have conversation about that, and she says, well, I'll ask Father Joe. Okay, you do that. Um, <laughs> it's funny, it's cute. Um, but interestingly, I believe a, another grace moment is it's been through listening to my sermons and my preaching that she came to believe the call of God on my life to become a pastor. Mm. My siblings said, you know what? She's working on having a pastor for a daughter. (laughs) Having a queer pastor or having a queer daughter, that's a mind bender. So let's just go slow. (laughs) But my reality is I am a queer female Lutheran pastor. That defines all of my self-identifiers, so to speak, barring the motherhood and everything. But you know, it's part of who I am, and you can struggle to have a pastor for a daughter. If the Catholic Church ordained women, it wouldn't be an issue. <laughs> and you can struggle having a queer person as a daughter. Uh, that's your issue. And um, and if you choose to struggle having a queer pastor for a daughter, that too is your issue. But it's not going to stop me from what God has called me to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that your your ministry has sparked some conversation with her and i i think that's i i think it's so easy in this day and age to just cast out people who disagree with us we see that Mm -hmm. in a lot of places and um i love that you two are talking i think that's beautiful she's willing to stay in the conversation um and like many folks um in the straight community, uh, I honor that. I don't honor uh, cutting people off, right? Because we all have growing edges and um, someone's growth journey is a person, it's as personal as your faith journey. And I love my mom and the reality is she loves her family. your faith journey kind of changing and shifting from 
when you were in your marriage to eventually becoming a pastor, you you said you became Lutheran before you got divorced. What was what was shifting there? How did you land there? So uh, when I moved to Tennessee, my children, my two youngest were were toddlers, babies, in fact. And uh, my oldest son was in elementary school. And um, it was the reason why I transitioned to the Lutheran church is because when we talked about beginning family, uh, I made it very crystal clear that uh, it was my intention to raise my children in an active faith life. It was important to me. Uh, and I felt that I had a responsibility to uh, help them understand my understanding of where they came from and uh, why they're special in this world, um, and particularly through the lens of the Christian faith for all the problems that it has. <laughs> um, but by God's grace, we yeah. go forward. Uh, <laughs> um, but my their dad adamantly said, you could take them anywhere but the Catholic Church. Well, that was my only option because it's all I knew. <laughs> was he a Lutheran or was he? In- He's a cradle Lutheran, but okay. he uh, he never practiced past um, uh, confirmation, mm. and so. But he he played the role, I think, to pacify me. And uh, and in his defense, I think he really tried to make a go of it. When I realized that my options were his tradition or my tradition, because that's what made sense. Uh, the age-old running joke is that uh, Lutherans are just diet Catholics. <laughs> right, yeah, not a huge leap. Not a huge yeah. leap. And um, I embarked on the journey of becoming a member of the Lutheran Church, and it's always been the ELCA. Um, and so uh, I understood it. I resonated with it. It was uh, comfortable and fitting, and it provided a, a good framework to raise a family in. Mm-hmm. And um, uh well, I moved to Tennessee, and in 1997, uh, I I was very I was on staff. Um, At I the was, church. Yep, I oh, was wow. directing the um, the preschool program. Okay. Uh, my two participated in it, and uh, we built it up, and um, it became a major outreach for South Nashville uh, for pre K kids, and um, and I knew that I was called then. And my dad was still alive. And so I called my dad and I said, um, am I crazy? Because uh, I this is what's happening. He said, no, you're not crazy, but you need to talk to your husband because ministry is a family affair. And I thought, you know, um, he knows this because he was a deacon in the church and he went to seminary when I was in high school. And uh, and I'm one of six kids, so he he gets it. You know, yeah. it's a family affair. So I did. I went and talked to uh, my then husband, and he said, you know, uh, I did not sign up to be a pastor's spouse. That was devastating because I did not know what to do with that. I mean, it's very ominous when you have to tell God no. <laughs> That's a pretty hard uh, absolute to throw out there. Absolutely. Oh my <laughs> goodness, it was terrible. So. Uh, we talked and argued. I lost. And um, I went back to my dad and he said, well, you know, um, raising a family is ministry. That's ministry. And don't don't short that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because seminary is, it's a difficult road and your kids are young and uh, you need the support. So 
I told God, either you have to change his heart or I need to take a rain check. Well, almost 20 years to the month, <laughs> knock, knock, knock. My children are grown. Um, I just recently got back on my feet financially and, uh, you know, I have a paycheck and insurance and all the things that make life go. So I went back to my dad, who was still living at the time, and um, I said, Dad, am I crazy? He said, oh, no, you're not crazy. <laughs> I said, oh, no. And, um, and you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Within, within a year, I found myself at Vanderbilt Divinity School and um, trying to figure out how to do this thing as a single person. Um, it, it, it was such a difficult, I mean, Seminary, as I mentioned earlier, wrecks you. But for me, uh, I had the support of my kids. I had the support of my family. I had the support of my dad. My dad was my rock. Um, and then I got, I had the support of my partner because my dad gave me the same advice the second time. Go talk to your partner. Ministry is a family affair. Mm -hmm. So I did. And my partner said, absolutely, go. And I was like, seriously? <laughs> so what do you do? You quit your job and you go. Okay. You know, one day at a time, sweet Jesus, I guess. Yeah. But while in seminary, I incurred three devastating losses. Um, my partner left two weeks after I quit my job and started seminary. My partner left, uh, leaving me in a house by myself and no means of financial oh my gosh. support. Um, my second year of seminary, my father passed away. Oh, my goodness. Yep. And my final year, um, my academic advisor who was my mentor in ministry, passed away. Wow. So I started at Vanderbilt with a huge hedge of protection, and I ended up on bloody stumps by myself. But I can't really say by myself because God's providence is there. And the people that I met there literally yeah. formed a blanket around me that held me together and push-pulled and dragged me all the way through. <laughs> oh. And then wow. after Vanderbilt, uh, as a Lutheran, pastor you have to do a lutheran year so i was at luther seminary in minnesota uh, which that too was a gift my my younger brother my gay younger brother uh happens to live six miles from the seminary so i had a place to stay yeah he he didn't even know at the time it's just you know god's got jokes what are you gonna do <laughs> some of them are hilarious some of them are not so fun. Some of them are satire, I guess. I don't know. In the last few months, working up to ordination, you've been rolling out a new kind of church called The Table. Yes. Can you... Um, Tell us what that is and what it's going to be. And yeah, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So uh, the table is a new forming community of faith. And uh, essentially, uh, it's a place where people can come as their full self. My work as a pastor, as a mission, uh, they officially I'm called a, a development pastor because I'm developing a new community. And so uh, oftentimes people want to be part of a larger uh, faith family. Mm -hmm. And so part of my work, because I don't have a brick and mortar, I'm all over the place. 
part of my task, as I see it, is to connect people who want a place to go to Sunday school, who want a place to do potluck, who want a place to go to uh, church, however you interpret church. And I have at my access uh, 15 Lutheran churches. All of them are open and affirming of LGBTQ persons and persons who are used to living on the fringe. And so we have an open communion rail. And so part of my job, as I see it, is to help folks find a place to worship on the regular while we build the table. But the other thing that's important to note, Greg, is that the table by its very design is going to serve a community with very specific needs. Mm -hmm. We do not have... Uh, in the Deep South, a ministry like the table that is centering marginalized and vulnerable populations, particularly LGBTQ persons and those impacted by incarceration. Mm -hmm. There isn't one that exists. And so by its very nature, there is a need that needs to be filled. Um, We'll start with uh, small gatherings. Support groups are really big, and that's, that's a place that I've been told, I've been asked to start, particularly in the trans community. Mm. Um, our first group that we're going to start is uh, a support group for folks who uh, have surgery, who are lacking um, encouragement yeah. and support post-surgical uh, transition. I love that so much. I think there is such a such a big need for all of those things for just connecting folks here in town mm-hmm. um, especially at a time where people seem to be and statistically are lonelier than ever um, especially here in Nashville where there are so many more transplants than there used to be um, it takes years to find your like your support in any place so I think I think that's great I want to ask one last question. You know, we're we're chatting at a particularly fascinating moment, I think, for where you are in your career now as a pastor. Um, you know, kind of this this turning point, this um, this edge. What hope do you have? Maybe what what prayer do you find yourself praying um, right now as you as you step into this new ministry and into this like new this new part of your identity? Hmm. The very first day of seminary, I realized I was in way over my head. (laughs) One of the professors was addressing us and speaking about the vulnerability of what it is you're about to embark on. And I did not realize the losses that I was about to incur. I also didn't realize the dismantling that I was going to experience and the ways in which God already knew what God called me to do and was going to be there with me all the way through and then some into the future. And the two snippets I will leave you with are this. The professor said to the group, if you give to God all the broken pieces of your life, I'm going to cry. If you give God all the broken pieces of your life, God is so good that God will rearrange the pieces and make something new and beautiful. He was talking about a stained glass window and the windows in a church and how even when there's only one color 
in the shards of glass that they make this beautiful uh, image. Mm. And so he said, we all have broken pieces. And if you give God all your broken pieces, God will rearrange them and make a new window and it will be beautiful. So that's my invitation. Come to the table and bring all your broken pieces Mm -hmm. and we'll rearrange them right there on the table. The table of love, the table of grace, the table of mercy. Mm -hmm. We'll rearrange those pieces and together we'll make something new and beautiful. And the other prayer, prayer is important. My very first day of seminary, when I realized I was in over my head, I made this teeny-weeny little post-it note, and I stuck it on my computer, and it's many years old now and tattered, but I find myself praying it every day, sometimes several Mm -hmm. times a day, because I still use the same computer. And the prayer I wrote was very simply this. It was my heart then, it's my heart now. It said, Abba God. Thank you for the opportunity to grow in my knowledge of you. Grant me this day a clear mind, quiet time, and a willing heart to learn. Amen. Amen. (laughs) On that note, thank you for sharing your heart with us on this episode and um, reminding us that we're all continuing to learn on this journey. Thank you for the opportunity. It's just been... uh, It's been a gift. Like every other part of God's creation, this too is a gift. You're a gift. What you do for uh, the beloved community is a gift. And uh, your, your partnership and your friendship, that too is a gift. So thank you. A special thanks to Dawn for coming on the show. You can find her on Instagram at her handle, Dawn Dawn Did This. (laughs) I love that handle. You'll find that link in the show notes, along with other resources mentioned in this episode. I'm your host, Greg Thompson. Our editor is Cariette Harmon, and our theme music is by J.P. Ruggieri. We recorded this episode here in Nashville, Tennessee, at the We Own This Town studio. And a special thanks this week to Patreon members Will Potter, Austin Kubinek, and Nada Delvarpour for their support. Remember, you can become a member and get access to exclusive digital content and merchandise starting at just $1 a month. Learn more at patreon.com slash outloudstories. You can also leave us a one-time donation over on Venmo at outloudstories. And if you haven't already, please be sure to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, hit that subscribe button so you get the latest episodes right when they drop. For more updates, you can find us on social media at Outloud Stories, and you can sign up for our email newsletter on our website at outloudstories.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, remember friends, queer people have faith lives too. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>